this particular venture in the ministry of Jesus seems to stand out, doesn't it? I know it always did for me. It's one of those passages I remember when first hearing it in my childhood, because, I mean, this is one of the more, because because I grew up in um, a Protestant evangelical uh, kind of background, the you know, something that had had uh, the spirit of fire and brimstone, you know, at its um, at its utterance. It was, kind of, it was this. This was just food for that kind of a, a message. This is very powerful, very passionate. However, I do remember it being a bit troubling and puzzling, for that matter, because you know, for one thing, we know Jesus never intended to be a provocateur. And he never condoned violent activism within the sentiments of his renowned uh, Sermon on the Mount. You know, he also, even at the, the point at which he was arrested, what does he say? You know, Put away your sword. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. So what is this that we have in front of us? The other issue that kind of left me always baffled, you know, so to speak, was the fact that he wasn't arrested when he did this. We know through the collective scriptures of the Gospels that, you know, through numerous passages, Jesus' enemies spent much of their energies plotting against him and looked for even the most minimal of excuses to arrest him and silence him for good. However, it doesn't happen here. Of all places. Why not? Well, I used to think, uh, you know, of all, of all places, I used to think it would be the easiest place. But, you know, when we look at it closely, we understand, as especially in the wisdom of Mother Church, that Jesus' actions do not qualify as an act of violence equated with that which you'd expect from a social revolutionary. He's not a rioter, and the people present didn't receive his actions as such. It should be stated, however, that you know, not just anyone could get away with what Jesus did. It was exceptional. Only those regarded in Jewish society as genuine prophets could have gotten away with this. I suppose if John the Baptist himself had done it, it would have been socially acceptable for him. You know, our Lord certainly fits that description, not only because of the wondrous signs that he performs, but furthermore, the prophet who came before him, John the Baptist, who was renowned even by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you know, the officials, they regard, at least many of them, regarded him as a prophet. They even, at the beginning of the Gospels, you see him, them going out to him. You know, it's because John the Baptist acknowledges Jesus as the prophet of prophets, the Lamb of God. The one we are awaiting. Because of that, that gives all the more precedence in Jesus' hands to do this. As such, the actions of Jesus in the temple are not unprecedented. If you research the, you know, the, some of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, you'll find some similar public displays. Not the same as this, but... They were uh, in no way shy of, of um, making a spectacle within the temple area or in some prominent place in, in Jerusalem. 
Hence, you know, because, because this is a demonstration made by someone who's recognized as a prophet, you know, it's, it's fitting that the, instead of people trying to lay hands on Jesus and carry him off, there is a question. By what sign do you do these things? What sign can you give us to justify your actions? And it's here that we're graced with that penultimate prophecy of prophecies. In just a few words, Jesus expresses what he intends to do as Savior, what defines him as Savior, and how that saving work will be accomplished. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. While everyone was fi figuring, you know, he's speaking about the temple, you know, rebuilt by Herod the Great, in which they're all standing, we... We now understand, as the disciples also understand better after the fact, after the fact of the resurrection, that he was talking about the temple of his body. And furthermore, that was the kind of temple that we understand that he was talking about ultimately when he was driving everyone out at that moment. You know, I used to think that you know, it was uh, uh, years ago that it was... For the dignity of that, that temple there, that those people were being driven out and that activity was being halted. As some of the other gospels say, you know, he doesn't say marketplace, but he says, stop making my father's house a den of thieves. But ultimately, I mean, while he is speaking of that particular temple and its purpose, ultimately what he is trying to protect is another kind of temple, the same in relation to his, the temple of his own body. He's talking about us. The Father's house, of which Jesus says, you know, while they, um, while they thought it was, you know, the temple made of mortar, stone, and, and gold, it's the hearts of everyone that had entered there. Those are the temples that he's concerned about. The physical temple then, as we're we properly understand just as the physical temple now in which we stand this this beautiful church is not what our Lord wants it has a purpose to be sure but it's not the temple it's not this is not the tabernacle our Lord wants these are the temples he wants then as now This, ultimately, as we come before the altar every week, this is a workshop. A place in which the craftsmanship of our Lord can be accomplished. In this third week of Lent, our Lord, through these scriptures, wants to call attention exactly to what or, or who he is saving. When I say save, I don't mean preserve. He's not here to keep something old, like a, like a relic, and in a, in a kind of rest, uh, keep it restored. But we're here to ponder what he means by save is saving graces that recreate, always make new. That's the purpose of, purpose of Lent. It's the purpose of Easter, of celebrating every single year. Redemption has always been and will always be about rebirth. 
new beginnings. Every Lent that comes to us should be a Lent that is that much more sweet, that much sweeter, that much more enriched. Because there should be new persons, not the old ones that go through kind of rich ritual, uh, kind of routine ritual for the sake of camaraderie, the sake of fellowship, although we do experience fellowship and fraternity, make no mistake, but it's all for the sake of conversion. If for no other, if, if there's any other reason, it's, it's not worth it. There's one, I remember one story that uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen once, once recalled when someone stood up to him and just, I think, I think the young lad was an atheist, and said to him, no, I, I don't care what you say about the gospel. I don't, I, don't, I don't believe you Christians. He says, why is that? It's like, you believe that there was only one Jesus. If that God is so powerful, he should be able to make many Jesuses. He said, you're right. That is the purpose. We don't commemorate some memory, some legend of the past but we're standing in the midst of creation. One Christ came 2,000 years ago to make every human person a Christ in his name, in his body. The more we take, every day that goes by, that notion ought to become more rooted in our minds and hearts. That's why we take these steps. The Lord makes new children and more of his children every day. Let's commit ourselves evermore to, uh, to these Lenten days and ask our Blessed Mother, our patroness, to walk with us and encourage us. Thanks be to God.